0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 005 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that brings you all that is wonderful about food with not a mason jar in sight. I feel like that fad is dying. When was the last time you had a beverage in a mason jar, Will?
1: Uh, I actually have about 15 mason jars in my house right now. Do you use them for beverages and for food stuffs? We, I, weirdly, we don't use them for food stuffs at all pretty much we use them and you're going to hate me for this uh, for beverages and flowers I don't know how flowers I get I think flowers is is better than beverages um you know occasionally like when when um, I need we have one of the the giant ball uh mason jars and we use those for like you know the heavy duty. So if I want to bring them outside, not worry about them like shattering like a wine glass or something like that. I might use that instead. Yeah, no, I think it's right.
0: I think yeah, they they were in 2016. They were certainly overused in the restaurant world, but yeah, I can see the the appeal. I think it's a little weird when glamorous pot noodle thing came out with mason jars and all that nonsense. If you want a pot noodle, have a pot noodle. <laughs> anyway, here we are, episode five. It's been a couple of weeks since we recorded, but. What's exciting is that for the first time ever in the history of this podcast, Will and I are in the same time zone. But we're still 40 miles apart.
1: Yeah. So, logistically, it actually works out to be easier that uh, we not be in the same room. In fact, if we were in the same town, I'd probably be in the living room and you be in the study. It would make more sense. It does. I mean, with the setup, the recording setup that we have, it's just way easier to do it
0: like this. I've tried it before. The sound quality deteriorates. You distract each other. So, yeah, no, this is good. But at least uh, we can uh, can be drinking appropriate uh, beverages. I think that's the... I've said beverage more in the last three minutes than I've ever said in the last year. <laughs> we'll get onto to that in a second. But here we are, episode five. Episode four seems to have gone down really well. We're on a, we're on a bit of a streak here, a bit of a roll. Dim Sum was a, I don't think it was controversial particularly, but it was inspirational. I think it struck a chord with some of our more regular listeners. We got some nice feedback.
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to the fact that it is such a, everyone's had a burger, everyone's had, you know, a stew of some variety, everyone knows what an avocado is. But dim sum, um, for some people is such an, a great experience, something that connects them back to travel, or, or uh, a different part of the world. For other people, it, it, it's their first experience of something completely different. Yeah. And so it holds like it's like a cornerstone of their culinary journeys is, is what dim sum is, because it's a very easy gateway drug to a lot of of other Southeast Asian um, cuisines. And so I think that really struck home with a lot of people.
0: Yeah, a couple of tweets that came through our friend uh, Kobus in, in Cape Town said, uh, your latest episode is perfect, will, will be my go-to for introducing people to my favorite cuisine. Kobus travels probably more than I do, and either shortly before or shortly after this episode was posted, he was taunting us with photos from uh, the various wonderful places in, to eat in Hong Kong, including my personal favorite uh, Joy Heng in Wan Chai, and I think he also went to Din Tai Fung and Tim Ho Wan, and was cruel enough to post photos of that experience.
1: Yeah, af- it was after the uh, we went live. Um, he posted some some photos from his last trip to Tim Ho Wan, and not only did it make me feel very jealous, he he he's very good at capturing uh, the the energy of of Tim Ho Wan. It really felt like those those. Oh photos yeah, because he posted some
0: videos on Instagram, didn't he? And you had a sense of uh, the kind of. Yeah, the the energy is a great way, The vibrancy of that place. Because exactly. you went to the Mongkok one.
1: Uh, oh, the one that I've been to. Yeah, the one I yeah. was at last.
0: Yeah, so that that was nice to see. And uh, Graham Kingshot, who's a regular listener, uh, said he was so inspired that he's probably gonna have dim sum in London this weekend. But was chastising us for not mentioning. The quote Hong Kong wonder that is Maxim's City Hall, and he's got a fair point. This is a huge, huge. I mean, we talked about these sort of hangar-sized dim sum joints that you can find in a lot of cities, especially Hong Kong. But uh, Maxim's is is gargantuan. So yes, we were we were remiss not to have mentioned that. And then he followed up again, saying that thanks to the podcast, he had to have dim sum for lunch. And he went to Chinatang, which actually, if you're in London, Chinatang does some seriously good work. So I'm glad we could inspire such a uh, such a, a passionate response to a wonderful food. We have had a couple of, a couple, more than a couple, actually, of iTunes reviews as well. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Please, if you have 10 seconds, no matter where you are in the world, drop us an iTunes review. Chili Albi. I love all these nicknames. Because people never put their real names in iTunes review. Chili Alby said, uh, "So good, really insightful food pa- podcast, and really funny too." Bada Bing, one thousand. It's like being on AOL again.
1: Yeah, I know. Oh, it's just like all the good names are taken, so everyone's coming up with a you know Stormtrooper yeah. fan ninety four.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this is uh, so Bada Bing, one thousand. Uh, love it. My favorite food podcast. Actually, that's that, that's that's very kind indeed. Uh, always interesting, funny, enlightening. Thank you very much. That's that's really kind. And then. The mother of all reviews. This is just, this is, you know, I've got a YouTube show and another podcast that I've been doing for two years. I have never seen anything like this before in any of these, those shows. I don't know who you are, the one Frankie from somewhere in the UK.
1: No, somewhere could, in Hong Kong.
0: They, I think they're from Hong Kong, but they live in the UK oh, now. got it. That's kind of what I've managed to glean. Other than that, you're not on Twitter, from what I can see. I can't find out who you are, but I want to thank you because you wrote us an essay on iTunes that it was wonderful. It starts with great content, as always, with Alex and along with Will, who manages to add flair and attention to detail. <laughs> I don't think I anybody's straight, ever accused I'm you of that. I'm the straight
1: man to your funny man, I guess.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, you certainly uh, you certainly provide the... Uh, the kind of intellectual pillar of this podcast, and I just make the silly noises, uh, makes us the best food, uh, food and food culture podcast out there. Really kind, and then he or she—I uh, think she, but forgive me if I'm wrong—goes on to give us an education and clarification on what we mentioned on our dim sum podcast and i'm going to post this on my own twitter account at cube dweller and on the mastication nation twitter account in full mastication nations at mastication ntn on twitter because it's it's so long but so good that i want all of you to go and read this there's so many great points about what really is by definition dim sum what's kind of pushing the definition and what's categorically not correct some of the mistakes that we did confirm some of the things especially around the the chopstick thing that we'll mention at the at the outside of the episode debunks the uh the ability to determine somebody's relationship status by which fingers they use so that was interesting But this is wonderful. Thank you so much, the one Frankie, whoever
1: you are. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we always want this to be um, a conversation. Um, You know, we are just two people who are very passionate about food, but... Felt that most food podcasts were were somewhat monodirectional, somewhat on high, and we love the fact that you're giving us your perspective on on what you feel are the key points and the key takeaways from uh, a previous episode. So keep it coming. Um, you know, I've always said, find us on Twitter, find us wherever you can, and and we'll definitely engage with you. I, I want to know who you are. I want to find you on Twitter, Instagram. F- you know, send us a, a message somehow, and and let's keep the conversation going.
0: Yeah, we'd actually I'd love to have you on the podcast to talk more about this because this like this is a serious amount of research that's gone into this comment. So anyway, thank you very much. Uh this is a wonderful way to start the episode. But another great way to start the episode is to ask you what you're drinking on this lovely Monday evening.
1: Uh so this evening I am drinking a Pinot Grigio from Chateau Whole Foods. Chateau it's Whole Foods. Ha- it's the it's the house blend. I have no idea what it is, but it's like three dollars three dollars a bottle, and it's drinkable. So,
0: man, why not? I've never been a big believer in the mid range, mid price quality thing. Wine is expensive in this country. In America, Cal- Californian wine is unnecessarily expensive.
1: Like if you actually go out and buy, yes, I understand what you're saying, but we are, or well, I am blessed to live in an area that. A, I can go get two-buck chuck from um, from uh, Trader Joe's, and that's not bad. And, and the rule I think you guys told me was uh, it, it switches out sort of who the wine's coming from because it's kind of like a, a dregs program. Um, and so if you like one bottle, go back and buy a case of it because it's not going to be the same Merlot every time. That's right. And so we we generally do that where, where if we find a Merlot that we like or – a or generally, it's the reds that do uh, do better uh, on that consignment option, I guess. Um, and the Shiraz and the Merlots are good. And so we generally have a, a couple bottles of that lying around. And then Whole Foods, I think it's about $4 a bottle is, is about the same um, quality. And then, you know, we have places like Cancannon uh, in Livermore and Wente in Livermore. And if you're local, you can get like a bottle of Cancannon uh, Petite Syrah for six ninety nine. And mm-hmm. if you go to our restaurant, it's like 40 bucks. Yeah, um, I was
0: just surprised as I was wandering the aisles of the supermarket yesterday that the average price of a California bottle of red was 25 bucks. And there aren't many wines that I've tasted in that price range that have justify that that price point but i know there's it's good to know that there's more accessible prices anyway
1: what are you drinking
0: i am drinking i what am i drinking a beer it is a kona brewing company longboard island lager that's another thing that's quite difficult to get in this country lager y'all have gone guardrail to guardrail and it's craft beer everything it's difficult to get something other than a bud light that's a that's a, a a lager but this is very good Uh, My father-in-law is a big fan of it, so there was uh, a couple
1: of cold ones in the fridge, and I, I nicked one. As they say in England, yeah. Uh, yeah. Try because we do a lot of we have a lot of breweries around us. Um, not to to locate myself too close, uh, but I, I live uh, in case the crazies come for you. Exactly, unless the food um, the food glitterati come after me. Um, the I live like throwing's distance from Fieldworks, which is a big name in the in the East Bay. Uh, the Rare Barrel, which your friend uh, MG, oh um, yeah, Matty Galligan. talked about in the San Francisco episode. I mean, I can walk to there in like two minutes from my house. And then another wonderful place called uh, Novel Brewing. And uh, so we often do, uh, do a little Torta Torta Berkeley um, brewing, uh, beer, uh, sorry, brewers. Um, and generally, I'm the designated driver. And so I always try and find something on the lower end. And the, the, the craft brewing mentality is if it's not going to blow the back of your head out, it's not beer. And so trying to find an ale, because ales are often lower percentage alcohol that doesn't taste like like a warm cup, a cup of tobacco chew a spit is tough. Um, and and I can find some stuff around 4%, but you're never going to find something you know, less than that, that.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that too. Very high alcohol content. Y'all love your flavored beers too. Apricot this, blueberry that, chocolate nonsense. It's an abomination and you should be ashamed of yourselves.
1: Kate had a peanut butter. Uh, no, no, pe- she didn't. A peanut butter
0: stout the other day. Oh, give me a break. I know, right? You know, it doesn't really matter, I suppose. I was just, uh, I just think it's funny, it's slightly ironic, and a little bit irritating that it's difficult to find a lager, which it was 102 degrees over the weekend, maybe even warmer. I want a Carlsberg. Where can I find it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, perhaps not a Carlsberg, but you know what I mean? that, That type of thing. Anyway, man, we're getting like pulled towards the inexorable vortex of. Of beer and wine in this episode, and I can assure you, dear listener, that that's not the subject of today's episode because neither the of those start. Yeah. Ooh, hint. Best yes. thing you ate since we last recorded. It's been a couple of weeks.
1: Um, how are you? Do you do you like deep dish pizza?
0: Yeah, it came up in conversation actually last night. I, I, yes, I think it's a good thing. I can't eat it more than maybe every decade, but I do like it. <laughs>
1: So I was never really too much of a fan of it, and, and it is one of those things that traditionally aren't very good, um, you know, outside of Chicago, outside of the Midwest, and New Yorkers refuse to admit it that it is pizza. Um, but a couple of great places have popped up in, in, in San Francisco. Uh, most famously is a place called Zachary's that I think there's a couple of locations I've been around. there. I've been to the one in uh,
0: San Ramon and Berkeley, I think.
1: Yep. So there's one up the street from us, and then there's one in San Ramon. I think there's one in the city. Um, but there's another one that's popped up in the same area in our area, and it's also got a couple of locations around, uh, which is Little Star. And I like that it's not as deep as your traditional deep dish, which I find almost like, you know, soup. Um, but also their version of it is, um, is cornmeal crust. And, um, I really like it. It's, um, the, the normal one we go and get, um, is a meatball marscapone um, deep dish pizza. And it's, it's, it's good. Um, you know, I, I, I'm the same way I can have pizza, you know, almost every day, but, um, deep dish is something that is for maybe once every six months, but that was the best thing I've had recently. Nice. We have a tradition and that goes in my
0: family my wife's side of the family this happened i don't know seven or eight years now that whenever we arrive on mass from england for the summer or whatever we always get burritos the day we arrive that's like it it even when i come solo it's it happens it would be terrible luck not to so we always do it and so when we arrived here uh, the whole family on Thursday night, waiting for us—well, for, for me in particular—was a carnita super burrito from a very, very, very good taqueria here in the East Bay of San Francisco, and it was glorious,
1: absolutely we, uh, glorious. We took uh, my father-in-law, who was in town, to get Mexican because. Uh, he, he doesn't get too much Mexican on the east coast in Boston not a huge Mexican population in the northeast to our favorite place La Mission Um, and it's the only place that I know uh, that does a lamb burrito and it's fantastic I like lamb burritos there used to be a place where, near Mar- where I used to work in a previous
0: life that had lamb burritos I think a well-made burrito is one of the most wonderful things in the world. And just even the the simple things like the 10-gallon the bag of tortilla chips that they give you that were clearly made in-house and the salsa, I just, it's just such a great experience. It doesn't matter if it was made 90 minutes ago and was waiting for me as we sat in traffic, it was still the best burrito I'd had in a year. So that was easily the best thing I've eaten in the last two weeks. I am also a fan of our topic of today, and it's when I tell you, folks, what it is, you're going to roll your eyes and go, boring. It's an emoji. It's an emoji. It's an emoji. That's another good clue. It's not. It's super fascinating, and the more I've researched this for this episode, the more I have fallen in
1: love with the glorious, glorious eggplant. So, I'm going to agree with you on the fact that it was really interesting to further my knowledge on this on the specific uh um vegetable slash fruit because it technically is a fruit from botanical but it's eaten like a vegetable uh I am I'm not um anti-eggplant I don't dislike it I am nothing eggplant I just think it is a it's just doesn't do anything for me
0: and I think that is where the beauty of the eggplant lies. It's, it's like the vegetable version of
1: tofu. Yeah,
0: I think that's a very good description. And we'll get into that because actually I think that is what makes it such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I can I can hear you all going, this is – who gives a crap about eggplants? Stay with us because this is fascinating. I think – I I hear people turn their noses up, I don't really like eggplant. Well, no, that's impossible. You just don't like the way that it was prepared for you that one time. Mm-hmm that's impossible not to like eggplant because it is so versatile and so interesting. Even its freaking name is interesting. And I sat there on the couch today researching this episode, giggling because I'm a total word nerd. And my wife was like, what the hell's wrong with you? As I was looking into and just diving into the, just purely the etymology of the word. But We'll go into this because I think there's there's one thing we have to address immediately. Eggplants in the English speaking world, or eggplant in the English speaking world, is also known as aubergine. So if you are in a country and there are a few that refer to it as an aubergine, we're talking about aubergines. But eggplant starts with an e, and we're at e in the alphabet. So
1: also, we're both in America, and that's where it is. Uh, yeah, called I think back. more
0: more people call it eggplant. Uh, I think in. North America and Australia's eggplant in the UK, obviously France and Germany it's called an aubergine. We'll get into the other other names it goes by around the world because it's an insanely popular dish shortly. But this is something that has been around in the annals of culinary history for a very 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 long time. Have you I mean have you uh, the first record that I could find was in 554
1: AD. Yeah, I did some, I think we've uh, quite, not coincidentally, quite uh, nicely uh, separated our areas of expertise on, on researching the specific item uh, so that we've got some nice tidbits here. Um, I know that it originated in South, uh, Southeast Asia, um, which is interesting because it is one of those things that are so intrinsically linked with Italian food and more so in, in this area of the world, Italian-American food, and we'll, we'll get into that as well, it's one of those things that when we come to it at some point I really want to talk about like how things become associated with countries that have absolutely zero to do it like apple pie in America but they, they originate from what I saw was Southeast Asia mainly Vietnam Th- uh, Thailand that sort of area and then migrated along uh, as things all so, so much do along the Silk Road uh, and just because the Chinese were the great uh, record keepers that they were uh, a lot of first times any sort of fruits or or vegetables show up. Uh, it is in Chinese culture um, around this time. It's because they're keeping track of what was coming through. Yeah, so, I, I mean, but they were like they were seven hundred
0: years ahead of anybody else mentioning this particular th- plant in any type of cultivation reference. Meaning that it was going to be used for something, and and it wasn't like, oh, look, there's a purple plant. This was, there was a book, and I, I, you know, the pronunciation is kind of beyond me, but I guess it's Cumin Yao Shu, which was, translates literally to Essential Techniques for the Welfare of the People, and it's basically a cookbook. It came from 554 uh, AD, like I mentioned, 92 chapters, and it's basically 1,500 years of uh, everything, cooking, agriculture, horticulture, Uh, livestock, husbandry, all of that into this incredible book. And that has 280 recipes in it. And in it, there is this reference to what we know uh, as eggplant. And there wasn't anything else, again, until deep into the Middle Ages in, in Arabic Spain in the 12th century that described how to grow aubergine. So that's not to say that no one was using him in the interceding 700 years, it's just that no one had taken the time to write, write it down. But this is something that has been, you know, eggplant has been the bedrock of Southeast Asian, Indians, and you know, spreading backwards, through to Europe, uh, Spain, especially France, Germany, Britain, and then over to North America, eventually, for literally 1000s and 1000s of years. And as we're going to go into a little bit later the applications of the dish are so broad and so varied that i just
1: i just i love freaking eggplants <laughs> as a concept <laughs> um i guess we should back up a little bit and talk a little bit about it what it is botanically um it is a berry um it does have um seeds on um sorry it does we call it a fruit. We call it a vegetable, but it is technically uh, a berry. Um, it is a member of the nightshade family, which I think is very interesting. Yeah,
0: it's a, which is such a diverse range uh, group of. Yeah,
1: so tomatoes come from the nightshade family, potatoes come from the nightshade family, bell peppers. And if you want to say, like, you know, we're not genetically modifying anything there, right there, shows that you can take one specific kind of plant and make it into those four different kinds of uh, of vegetable. Uh, That shows some some very large diversification right there. You know, as you mentioned, it does come from Southeast Asia, China. One of the things I I learned recently was, you know, it should be, like most vegetables, uh, heavy for its size, the skin, which is uh, generally purple in traditional, what most people know as eggplant, should be very, very smooth, should have the little green pot on top, be very vibrant. The thing that I didn't know was that they're sexed, so you can look on the very bottom of them, and if they have a navel, they're female, and if they have more of an outy bu- belly button, they're male. And I bring this <laughs> up for a specific reason. The female ones have more seeds in them and are more ah. bitter, and so they have a lot higher alcohol- alkaloid content and uh, can be considered, if not treated right, reminiscent of uh, nicotine and morphine. Oh, gross. In the flavor, so it is really interesting that it's still the you know a culinary item that we still use that that still has such a a bitter flavor about it, and that, that I guess that's why it's so popular still to this day in Southeast Asia. But like we're talking about like you know the American style eggplant, but there are so many different varieties of them from the Japanese to the you know the Middle Eastern style. There's a to-
0: Vietnamese one which is the size of a golf ball and
1: apparently very bitter and astringent until yeah, you cook exactly. it. exactly. And so I guess the one of the we should jump into you know the, the the elephant in the room is why one of the people call them aubergines and, and another call them eggplant. Um, and so what I found was that the first recorded uh, mention of eggplant, you know, you mentioned your first recorded time of it ever being called uh, being noted is five forty four, but the first time it's ever called eggplant was in seventeen sixty seven. So you know, not that long ago, and it only applied to one specific variety of eggplant. That was shaped like a small, round, yellow or white egg. And it looked like a hen's egg. And um, I've seen photos of them because they can still create these. And they've put them into um, egg trays. And I can't tell the difference. That's crazy. I mean, but it makes
0: total sense. And I don't think – you look at the aubergine slash eggplant that we all know and love, which is the emoji purple, you know, not a small thing, and go, what the hell were they smoking When they were like, that looks like an egg. Exactly.
1: So I think that one a giant purple egg. I think it's like one of those things where it's it's uh, marketing on one specific variety just took hold, and it just became the the default term for for all things that were of that of that family and, and um, you know, why aubergine in in French or Latin-speaking, uh, Latin-derivative-speaking countries makes sense, um, whilst the eggplant in the rest of the world is a bit of a head tilter. Oh, well, I love it
0: because, and, you know, we could spend some well, – we will spend a good amount of time on the name because I think, you know, we can reference the whole how crazy were they when they came up with the eggplant name when it actually looks like it does, we now know the reason because the original version that they saw when they applied that name kind of looked like an egg. But mm-hmm. the name is all over the place. So we've talked about in in North America and Australia, it's called an eggplant. In in Britain, uh, Germany, and France, it's it's aubergine. In South Asia, so which includes India, in South Africa, in Malaysia, Singapore, where it is a unbelievably Uh, a popular and widely available plant and and, an ingredient. It's called brinjal. Uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly. B-R-I-N-J-A-L. And we'll we'll come back to that in a second. In Indonesia, again, where it's a very common ingredient, terong. But I love that in uh, the Caribbean, it was called melangine. um, Before that, melangina. And the mad apple. And I was like, why the hell did they call it the mad apple? Doesn't look like an apple, but when they went from Melangina and it kind of drifted towards the Mediterranean and into Italy, it became Melanzana, which was interpreted as Mela Insana, crazy apple. So it became the mad apple in English. And so for a long time in the 17th and 18th century it was referred to as the mad apple because in the in 13th century it, Italian folklore it was determined by a collection of housewives I assume that the eggplant will make you cuckoo bananas. That if you, <laughs> if, you if you if you if you eat
1: eggplant, if you touch
0: eggplant, you will go insane
1: so there's there's two things i sort of want to touch upon there and i thought maybe just reading on this that it, the, the the apple part of it came from the fact that basically in in french um so many so many vegetables and fruits do have the word apple in it so uh palm is apple um but then um you know uh potato is uh palm de terre yep is that right? Yep. yep and then and then pomegranate it, 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 they use the same root word as, as apple. Um, and so it all I thought that that's where maybe that's where the the language drift as it's known came from. Um, well it's, you know, what
0: I think what's so cool about it is that you can trace back these these the ones that we talked about at the very beginning, you know, the regional ones that have stuck to you can see where they came from. So Brinjal, what they call it in India and some places in uh, English speaking, comes from the Portuguese Bringela. Uh, the Arabic name is the source for the the melangine uh mm-hmm. and the and binjal and and I, I think that that's so cool and there's a there was a collection of uh of of word analysis that wasn't really a dictionary in the in the eighteen hundreds called hobson Jobson and they said and i quote probably there is no word of the kind which has undergone such an extraordinary variety of modifications whilst retaining the the same meaning as this meaning aubergine or eggplant or brinjal or whatever you want to call it and it's absolutely true and there aren't many words and i you know i i'm completely fascinated with etymology and there are so few words that we use collectively as a species that you can trace back and see the kind of evolutionary forks and where they've anchored themselves in regions, and the word is exactly the same. It means the same thing. It's not nuanced. It's not like we can reinterpret it. Or it means the same thing. And I think that there's a there's a wonderful beauty in that.
1: I I agree. And I'm wondering. I'm sort of looking at it here. <laughs> If the names sort of followed along the lines of um, the explorers, sort of, you know, the Portuguese went east of the, of the Vatican, the Spanish went west of the Vatican, or is it vice versa? I always forget that. I think it's east. And they would explore that way. And that's why you have, like, tempura was in, was uh, introduced to the Japanese by the Portuguese. And, and, you know, the Spanish went to the New Worlds. Um, and so, you know, that's where maybe some of that language drift happened as well, and I would love to dive into that a little bit more and explain, uh, and and explore, sort of see if that does hold up. But it really is interesting, and also knowing that there's a fantastic book, and I forget what it's called, but Bill Bryson talks about it in one of his uh, more recent books, uh, At Home, which is a study of becoming comfortable slowly, as I think he calls it. And he talks about a book from the 1800s that basically goes over, you know, how to be a chef, uh, how to be a home cook, or um, how to be a dem- how to work with domestic servants, all this kind of stuff but the woman who wrote it was a bad Um, Sorry, we're going to have to bleep that. (laughs) Um, And she would say stuff like, you know, tomatoes uh, will turn you insane and you should boil pasta for two and a half hours and, you know, um, mangoes are, you know, uh, are horrible and only taste like gasoline. So this woman didn't know what she was talking about, but it came one of the most popular cookbooks of the time and they talk about um, eggplant in there. And so I'll have to look it up and 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 see where she falls down on the the whole etymology of it as well.
0: But it's nice because, you know, You know, as with all good old wives tales, uh, the craziness is rooted in a misinterpreted or misunderstood fact. And certainly, as we all know, uh, eating aubergines slash eggplants will not turn you crazy. However, as with many of the nightshade family, including the aptly named deadly nightshade, the flowers and leaves of an eggplant can be poisonous if consumed in large, and we're talking like metric ton loads. Uh, of quantities due to the president, president, the presence uh, of this stuff called solanine, which is a, a an enzyme which can kill you in very very high doses. So it was probably one of those things where someone was like, "I'm going to just eat a whole bunch of these leaves or make some kind of paste out of them, and all of a sudden they drop dead or Point they go
1: they go crazy." You know, obviously we have the 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 what are we up to you new know, five. Flavors, um, including umami, these days, uh, and they they they've worked out that we've uh, we established these five flavors: salts, you know, sweet, bitter, savory, and so on, as as evolutionary traits to help us find what we need in the wild to you know what our body needs. And the bitter one comes from the fact that it's actually a defense mechanism, um, and that's why children up to a certain age hate bitter food. It's because bitter is a sign in nature of poison. poison. Yeah, And so that's why kids don't like broccoli when they're young. And so, you know, it's often the case that you have bitter foods being part of the deadly nightshade family. Or or um, I remember reading that the, the, the green parts of rhubarb are, are very, very bad for you as well. I was like, who the hell is eating their green bits of rhubarb? But those things are not great for you either. And so... I think it much more in Southeast Asian cooking. It is used for its bitterness rather than in in, in the in the Western Hemisphere, where uh, that is sort of tried to wash uh, wash that away.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean in terms of the flavor, you found this good quote from the.
1: From the BBC that I think sums up up my way of looking at it. And maybe it's the fact that I've just had um, not the greatest eggplant in the world. The BBC Food said, all varieties share the same bland, mildly smoky flavor and flesh that's spongy when raw, but soft when cooked. And that is not a ringing endorsement for something that you want to be eating.
0: No, and and nutritionally... It's almost inert. It's twenty five calories at most per hundred grams. It's ninety two percent water. I mean, when you review what we've said over the last fifteen or twenty minutes, it doesn't sound like the most compelling thing. Yes, it has a very interesting name. Yes, it's a you know it's a it's an attractive looking thing. It's got a beautiful color. but spongy, bland ninety two percent water.
1: But doesn't. I think that's also like talking about the the mainland. Those the sort of main American style crop um, because the Japanese style, which a lot of people may have encountered in in uh, tempura, is a lot thinner. Um, the skin is a lot thinner and and works great for that reason in in deep frying in um, in tempura. You know, you mentioned the ninety two percent water uh, content. One of the big things that a lot of people don't know you're supposed to do when cooking uh, for most applications. With uh, with eggplant is the purge, uh, and uh, and what that is is basically you're ladening the cells with salt to cause all the liquid to come out, and then you're left with uh, the actual meat, as it were, of the vegetable.
0: Yeah, and I I think preparation is very important. I think a lot I think a lot of people will fall into the camp that you are where. They've, they've had, you know, a particular dish a couple of times and then, you know, it just hasn't done anything for them and there's far more compelling things on the menu. But when you hear the variety and diversity of dishes that plant appears gold. in, yeah, across the world – it's staggering, and I would urge you then to go and try some of these because they are almost universally available. But let's let's start with the one that you mentioned at the top of the show that probably most people in the U.S. certainly I don't think outside of the U.S. really would be familiar with, which is
1: eggplant. Hold on, hold on. I was going to say I was going to say uh, I have to throw this in here, or Kate will get very, my wife will get very mad at me. We're going to now play a round called "What Came First, the Chicken or the Eggplant." Okay, okay. (laughs) So, as you were alluding to, most people have had eggplant Parmesan. Which is a very traditional dish in Italy, and and and, and more so in uh, the U.S. these days. And it is basically, um, you know, very thinly sliced pieces of uh, of eggplant in uh, a marinara sauce with cheese, and it's almost like a lasagna without the you know without the pasta, and it, it's just like a hearty Italian dish. And it's, it's, it's it. I actually enjoy it, but dimes to dollars. I was doing this, I was asking some friends today, uh, saying what came first, that or the wildly more uh, available and uh, more consumed, chicken parmesan. Which is the same concept, no eggplant and deep fried cutlets of chicken or sometimes veal. And they all put their hands up and said, oh, it's chicken. It's It's got to be chicken parmesan. Uh, eggplant parmesan was probably invented in like San Francisco by a bunch of hippies that wanted to did not eat uh, eat chicken. I was like, <laughs> wrong. Yeah, no, the way around
0: because it came from some of the poorest regions of Italy. Exactly. You think it was, this is peasant. This is yeah. classic peasant food.
1: You think Italian housewives in the uh, 18th century had time to go fry some chicken? This you know old chicken that just gave up the ghost on uh, on on laying eggs, and like that's what you're gonna do with it? No, they were gonna make stock with it. They're gonna make stew out of it. It always was something that was available that went a long way, and to you know a lot of people is a meat vegetable meat substitute. So uh, eggplant parmesan or parmesan. Um, I, I apologize for my Italian uh, pronunciation here, parmesanina. I can't say. Yeah, me- melanzane alle parmigiana. So there you go,
0: melanzane, which is as you heard one of the other words for it and root root words for eggplant. I, I, I've had it a couple of times. I like it. I think uh, it has inspired some of these very popular spinoffs, as you said, chicken, veal, parmesan, parmesan, however you, however you want to refer to it. But that's, I think, people's most prevalent and popular and probably most available in the U.S. application of eggplant. And when it's done badly, when the rest of those components are not prepared well, and they're not, if it's not pan fried well, it's dull. It's chewy. It's, it's homogenous. It's it's gross. And I can understand people are like, eh, I'm not a fan. So I think if it's done well, it can be transcendent. But that was never my first or favorite application of eggplant. I maybe have had that once or twice in my life. I don't think it's a good showcase for what uh, eggplant can do. I have lots of favorite eggplant dishes. But I think
1: my two favorite, I'll start with my first, is baba ganoush. Fan? I've had it lots of different ways. And so one of the ways that I know it, and I like kind of enjoy it this way, is that it's almost to the level of hummus. Because I know yes. you can go chunky and yes, you can go on, on the smoother side. So the version that I like is more like, you know, you throw a couple of, um, of aubergines, uh, eggplants onto a grill. Yes, you know, that's ro-
0: Imperative.
1: Yeah, roast them off. You're almost doing it like how you would blacken, um, uh, how you would blacken, uh, red peppers um, for making salsa, and then you know wrapping them. Up. What way I've seen it is you wrap it in in, in um, cling film, uh, and then cut the tops off and squeeze out the innards, the meat, into a into a bowl. Uh, then add um, uh, lemon juice, garlic, tahini, which is a uh, uh, sesame paste, and then uh, take it for a whiz in your in your magic mix with a little little bit of salt, pepper, some herbs, um, and then finishing with um, a little bit of uh, green herbs on top, you know, maybe some parsley, whatever, you know, whatever tickles your fancy there and then eaten with pita chips. And I know that's a yeah, very it, specific it, way. Oh no, eat not it. pita chips, you savage. Absolutely you- not. The bread, the chips is, you know,
0: no. 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 Levant? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's one of those things, it's one of those wonderful things that, um, you know, it's typical, traditional, one of the core pillars of uh, of a good Metzah but it's, it's claimed by, or not claimed, shared by a lot of different countries. Armenia, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Jordan, uh, I've had it in Lebanon, Palestine, Syria... Turkey and a few others, and it's one of those things that is far older than the borders of those countries. And I, you know, as contentious as some of those borders may be, it the 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 enjoyment of that of this particular dish and others like falafel, which perhaps we'll cover in the next episode, I don't know, uh, are are just you know they 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 know no borders, and I think that that's that's wonderful. I love even mediocre baba ganoush. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I think it's a great showcase because you grill it, you get this much sweeter flesh. And when you mix it in with the tahini and the olive oil and all of this stuff, and you have it with the other things that comprise a mezza, it's flipping fantastic.
1: Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, it's something that you often see on plates when you when you have like more of the platter style uh, Middle Eastern food, and you don't know what it is, but it tastes good. It's the kind of... It doesn't hold any of the color of the eggplant, because the eggplant color comes from the skin, so it is that more taupe color, I would Mm -hmm. say, and often you'll see some really good olive oil just drizzled on top of it right at the end, Um, but there's lots of different ways, and, and it's one of those things that everyone and their mother and always trust Middle Eastern mothers when it comes to Baba Ganesh will say theirs is the best way, but they'll always um, be slightly different.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's a good thing. I think it's the same with with all things like that. You know, Yotem uh, Ah'talenghi uh, in his book Jerusalem, I think it's in Jerusalem, has a killer
1: Baba Ganesh recipe, which, you know, is... I only just found out about him. Sorry to interrupt. I only just found out about him about... Three years ago, but he's like the king in in English cooking right now, isn't he? Uh, he has been for a while, and he's you know he's lived it, he's lived
0: in London. He is is from uh, Israel. Uh, yeah, I love him. I think he does great work. He makes that type of food, which can be complicated, uh, very very
1: accessible. And, and, yeah, and beautiful I think and tasty. That from what I've read, from the books I've been reading, from the podcasts I've been listening to, he has been sort of a, a safe entry point for a lot of people that they're, you know, in England especially, that their only entrent, entrance into Middle Eastern cooking is falafel and kebabs. And so he has really taken on the, the from what I, one of the things I always remember about him was uh, he has a whole book on salads. And there are all these incredible salads yeah. with pomegranates and, and you know. It's all <laughs> uh, fresh cane. and just just delicious and the photography in his books is amazing so yeah
0: grab it because the the uh, the baba ganoush recipe alone is worth it so you mentioned just a second ago when you were describing uh eggplant parmesan that that it's you know you could go oh this kind of looks like lasagna well another one of my favorite ways of using eggplant aubergine is moussaka
1: didn't he just sign for celtic
0: I love moussaka and it's one it's something I make at home quite a lot. It is very similar to a, a a lasagna in that it is layer after layer of different ingredients, but primarily it's it's again the 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 sliced thin slices of aubergine uh pan-fried and then layered with and it depends on where you come it's a, it's a kind of levantine, middle eastern, balkan dish, greek as well. You make a bechamel sauce or a, or a or a custard sauce, uh, and you just you know layers of that with with minced lamb. In some cases, it could be chickpeas, but the only thing that sort of is always in these dishes is eggplant, and again, it's got the melted cheese on top. I love a a good moussaka. Our uncle makes a phenomenal moussaka, and I, I can't remember who he said the rest. Maybe Nigella Lawson or Delia Smith. And it is, it's phenomenal. It's so, so good. And, and you play around with it. It's so easy to make. It's a little bit time-consuming, but it's spectacular. When you set the piping hot casserole dish in the middle of the
1: table, it is going to uh, cause a stir as well. I love it. Do you like it? Yeah. I've had bad... I've had bad, and that's something that I, I've always been wary of. I think that it's a texture thing for me, and so I need to make sure that it's it's. You would never really have just a plate of moussaka; it would be with all the other you know accoutrement, um, and so you'd be you know having other things with it, uh, something fresher, something cold, something hot. But a good lamb moussaka, I, it, it is very tasty. Yeah, lamb,
0: That combination of the of the lamb and the eggplant and the tomato and the bechamel and sometimes with cheese that's a little bit of a stretch it gets very close that's to such an eggplant an
1: interesting statement you just said there. like they listed the ingredients and it's eggplant it comes from the middle east and then the third ingredient is bechamel which is one of the mother sauces invented in the i mean we can do a whole episode on mother on sauces and, and how they all stem from a couple of mother sauces uh, but bechamel is just classic french cooking and so at some point some french gastronome and and some you know chef in in the Middle East and Turkey had to get together and go. This makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, like I mean, I think those- it's I think it's it's a bechamel
0: like sauce. If you go to Albania or Montenegro or Slovenia or Romania, there's a very similar one. But the t- the top layer is is a is custard, an egg based uh, sauce, and, huh. and not a. Uh, a milk and flour or butter uh, based sauce like a, like bechamel. This is savory custard. And, and if you go to Greece, and I think the Greek version is my, we need to get our friend uh, uh, Paul Papadimitriou on here uh, and, and, and kind of talk about that. But it's, it's sometimes a bechamel sauce, sometimes the, uh, the savory custard that I mentioned, but it's, it's from the 1920s, that, that particular version. And I, I just, I think it's great. Another phenomenal showcase. And, you know, is the eggplant there as the, Front and center flavor, not necessarily. It, it's a ha- it has an important structural responsibility. He
1: plays, he, yeah. The 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 eggplant plays the baseline in a yeah, solid jazz Spot on, band. exactly, exactly. It, it, it's almost like, and, and sorry to shift gears real quickly, and it just shows the roundness and the the global appeal of of. Of eggplant, shifting you know a couple hundred miles or you know almost a thousand miles to the west of the Middle East, uh, ratatouille, which is a quintessential French dish. Um, I didn't know this, but ratatouille niçoise is the full name. Is it? I um, didn't know that either. Uh, of of most uh, styles, obviously there's ratatouille stew and there's ratatouille niçoise and just how you're uh, um, preparing it and where it's being prepared. It is a Provencal um, dish. And it is one of those things that in other countries, the eggplant might be replaced with a a squash, uh, a pumpkin, um, you know, something along those lines. But it fills that that role of being a a big, satisfying um, ingredient that bulks out dishes. And And ratatouille for me, it is something that I really enjoy alongside certain grilled meats. I think it complements it perfectly.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's too. It, it is too. It's a. It's a. It's a great thing. I think you know. You when I make a, a ratatouille, I I again grill the the eggplant as well. So again, as you say, it's a perfect complement to grilled meats. It's a. Uh, it's a wonderfully refreshing thing. We eat a lot of it in the summer. I think it's probably because the ingredients are available. Um, so I think. It's important to mention where we get before we move on to what I think is like the the region that has taken ownership of the eggplant, where we get eggplant from today in 2017. There are two countries that claim that it is native. it is their native species, India and China. And and that's fine because they produce 84%, those two countries of the world's supply of Aubergines, which is just a staggering amount. Between the two of them, they produce nearly 45 million tons of aubergines every single year. And they, they dedicate nearly 20 million square miles to the production of aubergines. But the people of India consume a staggering amount of eggplant. It is the cornerstone of so many wonderful and very very different indian dishes from mm-hmm. all over the place obviously a predominantly vegetarian uh, food culture in it not exclusively but predominantly and as you've mentioned eggplant can be cubed it can be minced it can be uh, sliced it can be it can take many different forms like evil and <laughs> and so it can be used in a variety of different applications and so there's a bunch of different indian uh, and you know in south you know indian subcontinent dishes that you will find eggplant in and they are amazing so there's um there's sambar which is a a, a lentil stew which is flavored with tamarind dalma which is a, obviously a dal dal lentils again based kind of like a curry with vegetables Uh, There's chutneys, there's the achar, which is the pickled thing you sometimes get at Indian restaurants when you're, when you got your papadoms, which is bloody delicious. But my favorite Indian or Indian subcontinent uh, eggplant dish is bygone bartha, which I actually weirdly first had here in Livermore, California, at one of my favorite Indian restaurants outside of India, Sansar. If you're ever in the East Bay, check it out. It's weirdly similar and can possibly trace its routes to baba Ganoush. in its preparation it's eaten in india pakistan and bangladesh and you basically mince the eggplant that you that you already grilled so you don't you don't mince it raw and then you get this so you get this smoky flavor because you're supposed to do it over a charcoal fire and then you smash and mash the eggplant with coriander chili peppers onions and mustard oil. And that's kind of your base. And then people riff on it to turn it into more of a curry. And we eat it all the time with, with rice or just with some naan bread or something. It is an extraordinarily satisfying, nourishing, wonderful thing. And it's like 25 cents to make it. It's so cheap. Eggplant is cheap as hell. And all of those other ingredients they basically give to you at the, at the supermarket. Have
1: you ever had it? No, but I've seen I've seen it on the menu at Sansar, and I've seen it on the menu uh, at my local Indian place. It always is on the specials, and I need I have my usual go to dishes at at my local Indian place. But I see people ordering it, and I probably should next time. I'm not feeling like you know getting something that's meat heavy. Try that out because I think one of the big things with um, with eggplant is. I want there to be a, a lot of flavor and yeah some of those other dishes have a lot of flavor but Indian chutneys and, and and curries just take it to the next level and so a dish that has my two favorite things you know or one of my favorite things sorry uh, Indian curry te- and Indian te- food technique you know with eggplant I feel like is a great way for people to try yeah. it that are just Bored of the usual and, way, and
0: the mustard oil and the the chilies just just take it up to another level. And you know what's what's really interesting is that there's a version of it in places like Trinidad and Suriname and 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 Guyana in the Caribbean Indo communities there that uh, takes some influences from that part of the world. But when um, indentured uh, laborers were brought over hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they brought this dish with them and then they, they um, added local traditions and flavors to it. And now it's, and they've got a completely different version of it as well. So I love bygone Bartha. I'd forgotten about it for like 10 years and then rediscovered it three or four years ago when we were in Mumbai and, Ah, what a what a phenomenal way to to do it. Go to India or go to an Indian restaurant and look for eggplant dishes. You will not be disappointed.
1: Agreed. Um, I also think that eggplants in general just pairs very very well with lamb because if you think about it, moussaka and stuff like that. But if you're thinking about like having it as a side dish, or or you know, I've seen. What we're saying here is that these are, are specific dishes that you have to make to make eggplant, uh, you know, not edible, but like, you know, part of something. It, it can be used just as an ingredient. I was just reading uh, in an article about someone who was making a flatbread with uh, grilled lamb and tahini and uh, a grilled uh, eggplant slices. And that sounds great. Um, Like, you know, if you season that right, if you put some, the right kind of uh, herbs on top of that, that's going to be great. It, it It isn't a flavor-forward thing, but it can, uh, again, to use the mu- music metaphor, it can play a great backing beat to a lot of things that you're using that you want a creaminess if you cook it a certain way. It gives a smokiness if you cook it another way. It gives a bulk if you cook it uh, you know third way. So yeah, it is something that I think a, a, is a refrigerator
0: stretcher. Yeah, absolutely. And in, if you travel around the world, you can see how versatile it is in, uh, in some places, especially in places like the Caucasus. The eggplant itself will be hollowed out and then stuffed with meat and rice and, and things and then baked. That's bloody delicious. In Spain, uh, there's a dish called Escalavita, predominantly in Catalonia, where they they take strips of aubergine, uh, sweet peppers and, uh, and onions and tomatoes. Uh, And then in Andalusia, they, they thinly slice the eggplant, deep fry it in olive oil and then serve it with hot, uh, serve it hot with honey, which completely changes it. Yeah. And then there's pickling and all that stuff, but there's so, it's so versatile. I love, I love it. I love it. So as we, as we wrap this episode up, uh, I want you, dear listener, to do two things. I want you to eat more eggplant or aubergine or whatever it's called where you live and I want you to let us know if you like it. Hit us up on mas- at MasticationNTN, and tell us if you like eggplant, aubergine, whatever you want to call it. How you use it, how you prepare it, how you've tried it. If you've only tried it in one dish, that's not good enough.
1: Let yeah, exactly. You need you need to try it. And and so there's two things that we need to do to to round this episode out. Following- from our previous episodes, let's just pick one dish that we both have tried a few times that that has eggplant as a heavy player, and and pick what drink would work best with that. So, I'll pick uh, eggplant eggplant parmesan, and I, you know it is a tomato sauce based dish, and so you cannot go wrong with uh, an Italian red, something like a you know a Chianti or something like that is going to work very very well. With uh, eggplant parmesan, but I, it's one of these things that, uh, dishes that doesn't have a, a normal pair. I mean, don't go mixing it with coffee cause it is a bitter meal anyway. So don't be having bitter stuff on top of it. But, uh, what, what would you pick for, uh, you know, a drink to pair with, with whatever your favorite eggplant dishes? I would go, I'm going to definitely go with, uh, with bygone Bartha. And I would say
0: that a very, very, very cold, uh, Indian beer, like a Kingfisher, Flying horse or whatever yeah, it's called. Yeah, oh, there's so many great Indian beers. So many great Indian beers. But a very, very cold one of those. And and the bike Bartha as a you know maybe part of a Tali or something, you know, where you've got lots of different dishes and you're sharing it with some buddies on a on a hot summer night. Can't go wrong with that.
1: Uh, and so the last thing I want to touch upon was the the this little tidbit uh, from France that I thought was absolutely hilarious. I was looking at what aubergines, you know, mean around the world. And apparently the word "aubergine" for the longest time, and I don't know why it was just women, but referred to female traffic wardens in France. And I looked up, the, I looked up the pictures, and they're all fairly matronly shaped, and they're all wearing deep, vivid eggplant purple suits. And you're like, "Oh, that makes sense." And I thought that was freaking brilliant. That's
0: hilarious. That's hilarious. I think that's a great way to end this episode on this balmy summer evening. So we will catch you guys in a week or two. And I did not give away what we're going to do for F because we haven't decided yet. But until then, enjoy your food.